This is the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. For most of my pre-COVID life, I traveled quite a bit. Growing up on an island in the Pacific meant getting on a plane pretty regularly. It took airline travel to get anywhere off the tropical rock that we lived on, and then as a missionary, flying was a frequent endeavor and I was no stranger to airports. Whether you love it or loathe it, there is one thing we can probably all agree on when it comes to airport travel. No one likes the inconvenience of the metal detector. After you stand in line and place your bag on the belt, the public humiliation of, uh, of undressing pursues. Removing the belt, the jacket or the sweater, taking off your shoes, searching each of your pockets and pulling out anything and everything. Your wallet, your cell phone, your keys, your tickets, your luggage tag, the loose change, your earbuds, even the old gum wrapper that somehow made it through a few cycles of laundry. They want everything taken out of those pockets, emptying the pockets fully and taking off anything and everything possible. Now, partially stripped and feeling vulnerable, you walk through the medical metal detector in your once fresh pair of socks and on the other side, stand at the belt waiting for your carry-on luggage to catch up. As you hold on to your baggy pants that are falling off your hips and watch with care to make sure no one snags your valuables, then just a short 90 seconds later, having stood in the airport briefly with all the extras stripped away, you reverse the process. Awkwardly dressing again in public view and stuffing your pockets with all your extras, not sure how you got them all in the first time. You complete the putting on ritual, grab your carry-ons and head off on your journey hoping you do not have to pass through security again on any leg of your journey. Last time on our podcast, we looked at the need to put off the old man and put on the new. We saw that in the old life, the life apart from Jesus, there was a progression, a darkened understanding, a blindness that develops to the things of God, a callousness that increases and diminishes sensitivity to righteousness, culminating in being given over to ungodly works and ways. That is the ways those who are alienated from God will walk in this world. But Paul challenges his reader and us to put off that old man, to be renewed in our thinking and in all of our ways, and to begin living a life of true righteousness and holiness, fulfilling all that for which we were created. Today we look a bit more at this principle of putting off and putting on. It's a more detailed and more thorough examination in that process as we pass through security at the airport once again, removing all that needs to go and reaching deep in our pockets for a thorough emptying of all that needs to undergo the Lord's scrutiny. And then as we come out on the other side, Paul tells us what to put on so that we are not left stripped only, but can leave lives that are fuller than they were before. Let's take a look in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25. As part of the putting off of the old life, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 25 through 27, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. As Paul gets a bit more detailed and practical this time on just what to put off and what to put on, he starts with two quotes here from the Old Testament. First, he instructs us to put away lying. He uses a verse there from Zechariah. It's chapter 8, verse 16. Now, before we look at what that verse says and why Paul is using it here, I love the fact that Paul refers to Scripture here to make his point. 
as he tells us what we need to put away, that we need to put away lying as followers of Jesus. He points to the word of God to show us the principle. Now, this is important because in the sanctification process, we can often muddy the waters as man. Man placing his expectation of what righteous living is and prescribing for us what changes need to come in our lives. And that can lead to legalism, where man's rules and expectations are placed on us. That legalism, but the Lord has said nothing on that particular matter, or at least he hasn't prescribed that course of action on the matter that man is prescribing. In Jesus' days, the Pharisees had done this to the nth degree, placing uncalled for and unattainable burdens that God never intended. The sanctification process of becoming more like Jesus should be guided by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. On Jesus' final night on this earth, just before his arrest, he prayed to the Father, Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. God's word, God's truth, will sanctify us as we stay close to it. Get away from his word? Well, we can slip back pretty easily into the old ways. So with the Bible as the guide in this sanctification process, Paul quotes from Zechariah, Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, and then adding his own commentary, for we are members of one another. When Zechariah wrote those words that Paul is quoting, Israel was experiencing a period of renewal. The nation of Israel had been brought back from captivity, taken to Babylon for 70 years for their disobedience and their rebellion. Now, back in the land, they had started to rebuild the temple. But for over a decade, it had been only half complete. So Zechariah is sent by God to encourage the people, reminding them of the future need of the temple, for the Messiah would come there. And as part of the new renewal, beyond just renewing the temple, Zechariah encourages them to experience personal and relational renewal and restoration as well. And then he says, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Nothing good can be built upon lies. It breaks trust, and a lie is never sustainable, because you have to keep lying to keep the lie in play. Paul adds something by saying, stop lying, for we are members of one another. Paul uses this once again, the imagery of the physical body, that we are members of one another, parts that are interconnected. And a body can only function properly if it tells itself the truth. Can you imagine if one part of your physical body lied to the other parts? Say if your hand touched something hot, but your hand told your brain that the thing was actually cool. Your hand would be severely burned, having received a lying message from the other body part. It would get the false message, and in doing so, it would be harmed. That's why telling the truth is so important, because we are members of one another. And lying within the body of Christ breaks down communication and robs other parts of the body from the safety and protection that should be offered. As the verse tells us, though, with the putting off, there's always a putting on in the sanctification process. The Lord does not strip us of something but supplies something else to replace it with if he does. There's a famous scene at the beginning of the first Indiana Jones movie, and I always think of that when I read Paul when he talks about putting off and putting on. It's the opening scene where Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, is in some old temple in the tropical jungle of some faraway land, and he finally finds the artifact that he came for. It's a goal in a head of an idol, resting upon a pedestal where it has sat untouched for centuries. 
But Indiana Jones knows the ancient people guarded their temple with booby traps. And out of caution, Indiana Jones in a split second snatches the golden idol head and switches it out with a bag of dirt weighing about the same amount as that idol head in hopes that he can avoid triggering the booby traps. And you hold your breath for a second, hoping that it's worked. He put off one thing and put on something right away to take its place. But alas, in Indiana Jones's case, he is too slow. And the booby traps are sprung, and he sprints out of the cave with a huge boulder rolling just inches behind him, ready to crush him at any moment. It's a great scene in, cinemat- cinemat- in the movie history. Put it off and put it on. Jesus, too, referenced putting off and putting on. In Luke 11, he says this, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. In essence, Jesus said that something has to fill the void. You can't just take something out and expect it to remain unless you fill it with something good. This is what happens when we preach righteousness, but not Jesus. When we promote behavior change, but not Jesus. When we demand right living, but don't introduce people to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, there is still a void and nothing to fill in that space. And if we have just put off with not putting anything on, Well, the change does not last long, and we go back to the old way. That's why in order to see true lasting change, you need to fill those gaps with more of Jesus. Paul said to put off lying, but to replace it with something else. And what is a replacement for a lying tongue? A truthful one, one that is known for speaking truth and honesty, one that can be trusted. That is evidence of a complete transformation. Paul also says there, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Anger. Paul again gives scriptural backing for this change in behavior, this time quoting from Psalm 4, verse 4, and referencing Psalm 37, verse 8. Now, Paul does not tell us not to be angry, because anger is God-given. It's something that stirs us up. I heard Chip Ingram teach once on anger a long time ago, and it stuck with me. He said that anger can be a healthy emotional emotion that motivates us to correct attitudes, behaviors, or injustices that we perceive to be wrong, and that anger is a secondary emotion caused by one of three things. First, anger can stir up when we are hurt, that is, when we have real or perceived unmet needs. Second, anger can be the result of frustration when we have real or perceived unmet expectations. Third, anger can come to light due to insecurity, when we have real or perceived attacks on our worth. Those are the causes most of the time of anger, when we feel our needs have not been met, when our expectations have not been met, or when we feel attacked in some way. But in addition, Chip said that we can express our anger in one of three ways and listen and see which kind of person you are. First are the spewers. They feel anger is necessary, and they show it readily for all to know. Second are the stuffers. They feel anger is wrong, so they try to ignore it or feel so guilty if they ever sense that they're angry that they stuff it down inside. And third are the leakers. They think showing anger is wrong, and so they passively aggressively let it out in small doses. Like when you open a two-liter bottle of soda slowly to let it out just enough so that you don't have it explode in your face. Well, 
Paul here in Ephesians affirms that anger is scriptural. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Being angry is not the problem because there is righteous anger. Anger that is rightly calibrated to respond to things that are sinful or unjust or unrighteous. For example, Jesus made a whip of cords to clear out the temple from all the corrupt buying and selling of sacrifices. Did you get that? Jesus made a whip in John 2.15. That means he got the supplies, sat down somewhere, braided the thing. It was premeditated. Jesus had a plan for how he was going to express his anger to drive home his point that the religious leaders were in the wrong. Being angry is not the problem. It's what we're angry about. And it's how we respond in anger that is the problem. Moses, too, responded in anger when he struck the rock in the wilderness. Previously, when the people were without water, Moses had spoken to the rock and water flowed forth, a gracious sign, a merciful sign of God wanting to supply for these people who didn't deserve it. But the next time, well, Moses had it up to here with those complainers. And it says in scripture, And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. But then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses responded in anger, and it wasn't righteous anger, and it was a misrepresentation of God. God was merciful in this scene, but Moses was angry, and he let his flesh out in his anger, and it cost him entrance into the promised land. Be angry, but do not sin in that anger, and be careful what you're actually angry about. Is it worth it? And don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it fester. Deal with it. Talk it through. Forgive the person. But don't let it linger. Because as Paul warns, that is when this God-given engine light on the dashboard, meant to warn us that something is out of sorts, when we let it remain on for too long and we let it drag on for an extended period, that is when the devil capitalizes on it. That's something the devil always does, isn't it? Takes the good things of God, even something like anger, and takes them hostage for his purposes. Paul exhorts when it comes to anger, do not give the devil a foothold. The devil already has a lot of influence and territory in this world. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We see his influence all around us, in the culture, in public opinion, in the family, in entertainment, in politics. He already has a huge claim in this world. One thing he does not have is the believer, you and I, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, according to 1 John 4.4. 4. So let us be careful, according to Paul, that we give no place to the devil. The word place there is topos. Don't give him a city or a place to live in. Don't give him a place to set up camp, because he is a tenant from hell, literally, and evicting him will not be so easy. The devil. He is active in this world. He is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Don't let him take advantage of you in moments of vulnerability, including when you're angry. Paul moves on from lying and anger to verse 28, which says, Let him who stole 
steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. We see again the put off and put on, no longer stealing, but instead working, and in fact, going beyond that and giving. There is so much hope in these verses. The world says things like, once a thief, always a thief, or once a liar, always a liar, or once a cheater, always a cheater. In fact, we've seen this in the headlines a lot in recent years, the exposure of people's pasts making the headlines. But that is the hope of the gospel, that people can change by the grace and power of God. And Paul points that out here. You who used to steal, that's the old you. Everyone knew you were the village thief. Now you work hard. Be the village employee of the month. In fact, be known as the village giver instead of the village taker. Redeem your reputation and let all see how changed you truly are. Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee and there he had healed the demon-possessed man, a man with a legion of demons. This man was so terrorized and he terrorized the people so much that he lived among the graves. And when they tried to chain him to control him, he just broke the chains. When Jesus came, he set that man free, casting the demons into a herd of swine. And there the man sat, no longer bound by Satan, clothed and in his right mind. And as Jesus went to leave, the man who had been demon-possessed begged Jesus that he might take him with them, take him away from that place where he had had such a bad reputation. But Jesus did not permit him, and instead said, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Jesus intended it to be the power of a living testimony, not just what he told them, but what they could actually see in his own life, a changed life that spoke powerfully of what Jesus had done. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Put off that stealing. Put off the stealing and put on the labor and the giving. Contribute to society generously, not taking selfishly. Let him labor. Paul says here that laboring is a good thing. When God created Adam shortly after he placed him in the garden to tend it and to keep him, to keep it, God gave him chores, something to do, something productive to contribute to this wonderful world that the Father had created to tend the garden. It was a partnership. It was a stewardship. Laboring is something good that is part of our calling on this earth. It wasn't until after the fall that labor became despised, when, as a result of man's choice to sin, the earth brought forth thorns and thistles. And the good delight of labor that God intended, for it was all good, was marred by the fallen nature of man and the fallen state of this world. Laboring is a good thing. It is something righteous people do. It brings glory to God. And not laboring can actually hinder the testimony of Christ. As Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. When we left the mission field, I truly sensed that I would be working and laboring in a quote-unquote regular job and not doing full-time labor or ministry, at least for a season. And at first, it was a real struggle. There in the high school classroom day after day, I really missed ministry, and I felt sometimes like I had been put on hold, but that maybe life would get started again when I could leave a secular job and get back into Christian ministry full-time. But I remember working at my desk one day at the high school, 
grading papers, planning lessons, responding to emails, and I felt the Spirit's prompting. It was the verse, Colossians 3, verse 23. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men. I realized that what I do is not what makes something holy or eternal. Something is holy and eternal because of the one who called me to do it. So it didn't matter that I was no longer in full-time ministry, that if I was teaching students as an employee of the school district or mowing my lawn and being a good steward as a homeowner or taking my wife out to dinner and blessing her in the role as a husband, that if God has given me that role, then it is a holy calling and that whatever I do, I should treat it as my calling. I tell you, that was a turning point in my life and my heart as well. It's interesting when we lose those imaginary boundaries between our secular work and the kingdom of God, when we consider all that we do as something we do unto the Lord. I miss ministry, but to be honest, I actually like working right now. There's something fulfilling and satisfying about laboring, at least when we do it unto the Lord. It can be exhausting, yes, it can become an idol for sure. There can be thorns and thistles definitely, and Friday never comes soon enough. But as Paul told them, they could and they should labor. It was part of their redeemed life and a part of their testimony to others. And it was a potential resource for God's kingdom as they could be givers to the work of God, contributing where they had once been consumers. Next, Paul speaks about another area involving our tongues in verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. A corrupt word. The word corrupt means rotten or putrefied. It was typically used for rotting vegetable and animal substances. It expressed that something is of poor quality, unfit for use, putrid. It was like the rotten cucumber you find in your fridge, or the lunch you took to work and forgot about in the back of your car, or the roadkill on the side of the road that has been there for far too long. Rotten and putrefied, those are sometimes words that come out of our mouths. Put those kind of words off, Paul says. Our tongue was created to praise the Lord and to build others up, not to defile them with disgusting, rotten things. But rottenness can spew forth if we're not careful, whether that be cursing the Lord or profanity or off-colored humor or put-downs or abusive language or gossip or complaining or deceit or criticism or slander. It's all putrid and rotting and not what our tongue was intended for. As James put so eloquently, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Now there are two approaches to changing our tongues, to taming it, as James says. One approach is the, quote, swear jar approach, putting outward restraints or deterrence or incentives to make our language better, to, quote, try harder to have more edifying speech. But in the end, our words are only a byproduct of something deeper. Jesus taught that the problem with our outward corrupt words really begins with a deeper problem. He said in Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? 
He said, in essence, that the problem with our words is our evil hearts, that the words are only an indication of something else that is corrupt. And unless that's changed, how can we speak good? He goes on, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. You want better language, he says, have your heart renewed, renewed by Jesus. The words will naturally come. Notice something wrong with your speech? It's an indication that something is off in your heart and in your relationship with Jesus. Jesus goes on in Matthew 12, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account to it of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Paul says our tongues and words are good for necessary edification, and that they should impart grace to the hearers. Necessary edification. It's necessary to edify others with our words. Say something. It's not just what we don't say that is a concern in terms of refraining from corrupting speech. There is a need for words that edify. To use these tongues and language abilities that God gave us to speak grace, to encourage, to express that we love others, to thank others, to say, I appreciate you. What a powerful instrument we have to impart grace with our words. Grace, undeserved favor, lavishing good with our words to those who don't deserve it. It can be as simple as thanking someone who has been abrupt in their customer service or taking the time to share a word of scripture with someone who is in the flesh. We're asking five simple words of, can I pray for you, when all you really want to do is walk away. Words that are good for necessary edification. Words that impart grace to the hearers. Put off the old tongue and put on the new. Paul begins to sum up this section of putting off and putting on in verse 29. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit within us can be grieved, made sorrowful, saddened, offended, made uneasy, as the word suggests. Back in chapter 1, we were told that as children of God, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are marked as His, and He comes to dwell within us. And when we walk in the flesh or walk in the old ways, we drag Him into it. We make Him sorrowful. We make Him uncomfortable. We make Him uneasy. And as powerful as he is, this grieving causes us to forfeit the power of God, at least temporarily as we walk in our flesh. Paul challenges us to consider the amazing relationship we have with the Holy Spirit, that he is committed to us, for us, empowering us, willing to use us for his glory. But how saddened he is when we take charge, even in the moment, and he is not allowed to receive that glory. And in what scenarios do we need to be careful not to grieve him? Well, Paul finishes out the chapter with verses 31 through 32, with some examples of how and when we can grieve the Holy Spirit, and when we can honor him and give him room to work. He first says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Verses 31 through 32. Here is Paul's final checklist in this section of putting off and putting on. Put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking with all malice. These are the states of the heart and of the mind that forget that God exists, that God is on the throne, and that Jesus had paid for sin. And in those moments, I take things into my own hands. 
In bitterness, we hold petty things against others, as temporal as they may be. In wrath, we let offenses fester and stir, not letting them go in light of more important things, and overlooking that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In anger, we sin because it feels good in the moment, forgetting that God is the ultimate judge and no unrighteousness will go overlooked. In clamor, we scream and shout to be heard now, impatiently, forgetting that God's forbearance and long-suffering and goodness leads us and others to repentance. In evil speaking, we hold back from destroying them physically, but behind their back we delight in assassinating them, even in our own conscience. That is the nature Paul tells us to put off, because harboring those feelings and attitudes and actions grieves the spirit, the very one we should long to grow closer to. Instead of those things we just looked at, we are to put on these things by the power of the Spirit who works in us. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. This life described here, the one we are to put on, is only possible in Jesus, especially in the world we live in today. Kindness, it is so needed in this world. Being tender-hearted versus hard-hearted, there's a softening as we're continually exposed to this life that needs to take place. I remember being a child and making the fatal mistake of leaving the lid off of the Play-Doh. And the soft, malleable, moldable, shapeable Play-Doh, it grew hard and crusty and became solid and eventually unmovable. This can happen to us as we grow calloused in a world rejecting God, as we're exposed to it over and over again without the covering and protection of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us, that we can put that off. Ezekiel wrote, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Oh, what happens to our hearts as we pray for compassion? We are exhorted to forgive as well here, even as God in Christ forgave you, giving it to you before you deserved it, before you even repented. This is the life God desires and asks from us in this Christ-rejecting world, to put off the natural tendency to respond, and to put on the Christ nature under the power of the Spirit, to respond in ways that bring Him glory. Being kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Can we live this out in the current world? Can we respond this way to the world's moral choices and political stances and religious intolerances, putting off the bitterness and the anger and the wrath and the malice and the evil speaking? But it has gotten so bad, we say. I heard a preacher remind me recently, guess what, Christians? We lose in this world. Why does it surprise us that the world lives as it lives? We are not of this world. And in fact, if you read scripture, we will lose before we win. We will lose, but it's not cause for bitterness or wrath or anger or malice. That is a sore loser. It's time for kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. We will lose until Jesus comes, and then we will win. We will win in the end, and it is promised, and so we can have hearts of good winners. And Father, we praise you for the victory that will ultimately be ours in Christ Jesus, and we thank you 
for the victory in the past, the victory that was accomplished on Calvary at the cross of Christ. And Lord, we ask you for the victory now in our own battles and our own lives, that you grant us the eyes of the Spirit to see where the old man still lives in us and give us the grace to put that old man off and give us tender hearts of repentance and your grace that we might put on the new man created according to Jesus in true righteousness and in true holiness. Help us to be witnesses of you in whatever calling you have called us to labor until the day you come, Lord, until your kingdom comes. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.